Regrettably, we didn't make any arrests. Uh, uh, we made uh, numerous stops of uh, possible suspects. Uh, we found the people to be most cooperative. The black community uh, realizes the uh, seriousness of the situation and the need for, co uh, for cooperating with the police authorities, and they have done so. But I have been informed that uh, he may have hinted or alluded to that this may be racially inspired, this street check, looking for suspects. Robbed with people who were murdering and who were attempting to, uh, attempting to murder. On the other hand, if we are ever going to have a system of justice that works, the need to get the layman, the lay woman to come on in and tell us everything they know is important. Police say he was one of Zebra's first victims, Salim Arakat, an Arab grocer who owned this small shop near San Francisco's Civic Center. Arakat was alone in the store on a Sunday morning last November when Zebra swept in, tied him up, then took $1,300 from the till. Then, for no apparent reason, the Zebra murdered the grocery man, muffling the gun with a family blanket. We're checking uh, for suspicious men who have been reported to us. We're trying to uh, track down men who have been reported to us. Uh, find out their uh, their activities uh, the last several nights, especially the nights of the murders. This is the area where police found the young woman laying in a pool of blood. They don't know much about the killing except that sometime around 10 o'clock last night, the couple was walking down a street in the North Beach area, and they were abducted by three men at gunpoint, forced into a car and brought here. The woman's throat was cut. The man was hit several times over the head with what police describe as a large bladed object. He was left for dead, but he managed to walk back up to the roadway where he flagged down a motorist. Brought his gun, fired at me twice, and uh, shot me. Hello, and welcome to the Deathcast. I'm your host, best-selling author, Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me once again as we prepare to take a look at a new case to us, that of the San Francisco Zebra Killings, also known as the San Francisco Death Angels. Couple of notes before we dive into the case. Proper, all of those clips that you heard at the beginning of the episode were pulled from the Bay Area Television Archive, which is housed at the San Francisco State University, and as such usage falls under fair use. No copyright infringement is intended by usage of those sound recordings. As always, I do have our normal show notes if you enjoy what I'm doing, you want to follow me on social media, you can find me most places under Ian Totten, author, The Death Cast, or Corpse Creek Publishing. If you would like to sign up for the show's mailing list, you can go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and click on the sign-up button. While there, please consider making a donation to the show by clicking on the donate button buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes every amount helps with the production of this show and with keeping the show financed if you are interested in joining the patreon for the show for as little as two dollars a month you can help with the production of the show you can go to tinyurl.com backslash dc patreon 
couple other ways you can help with the show is by going to your favorite podcasting app and leaving a five-star review. And, of course, subscribe and share the show on social media. Lastly, I want to give a big thank you to Ed Opperman, who had me on his show once again two weeks back from the time that you're hearing this recording, where he had me on to talk about the Idaho State murders. The reason being, the man accused, Brian Kohlberg, is actually my neighbor, and I have been investigating the case talking with members of the media as well as with members of the community to try and get an idea of who this individual that has been accused of these crimes actually is. So if you're interested in hearing that, just search out the Opperman Report and Ian Totten and it should come right up. Also, a quick plug because she's a really cool lady who constantly plugs my show unbeknownst to me. Go check out True Crime University by my friend Deb Sullivan. She has a much different take on true crime than most. This is partially because she has her master's degree in criminal justice and worked for years as a parole officer, but she really dives into the psychology of the criminals and does a damn good job at it, if I'm being honest. And I really think more people need to take a look at her show. I'm actually trying to find a case that I could present to her to see if she might not want to collaborate on it with me. So that's True Crime University. Check it out. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink. Find a nice comfy chair. Close your eyes, relax, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes, let's go to the crypt. San Francisco in the early 1970s was a place of racial unrest and a lot of upheaval. Coming off of the heels of the Manson murders, a lot of radical organizations had sprung up that could tangentially trace their roots to the city by the bay, groups such as the Weather Underground, the Black Panthers, the Black Liberation Army, the Symbolese Liberation Army, all of these groups that were fighting against what they saw as an oppressive culture perpetrated not only by the federal government, but also by state and local government. You had police shootings and beatings, many of the same things that we are dealing with in our society today. But during this period of time, those who were not okay with the status quo really took to the streets in order to protest against what they saw as injustices in society. Unlike today, however, it wasn't protesting or riots as such. These 
organizations actually carried out terror campaigns, some of them across the country, others in specific cities. One of these groups, who really weren't on anyone's radar, was an organization that referred to itself as the Death Angels. They've been called the San Francisco Death Angels cult. Later, however, it would become known as the Zebra Killings. Zebra Killings were a series of killings by African American men targeting white people. I know that's kind of insensitive to put it that way, but there really is no other way to describe the crimes or to put them. And these killings, along with the police's handling of them, further fed into the unrest that was already brewing in beneath the surface in San Francisco. Some people have come up with different ideas as to where they got the name Zebra Killings. It actually comes from the Z channel that the police used to communicate about these crimes. This was a name that was used internally, and eventually the media picked up on it. And I want to be clear, this wasn't all African Americans targeting white people. This was a very specific group that decided to carry out hate crimes as they saw whites as quote-unquote blue-eyed devils. They were a sect inside the Nation of Islam, also known as the NOI. The Nation of Islam is a black religious movement. Some people have characterized them as racist. Others have said they're a black separatists movement. It all depends really on who you talk to about this organization as well as which view of history you choose to take. Now, there, I'm not going to sit here and twiddle my thumbs concerning the Nation of Islam. There were individuals within the organization who did call for the death of white people, just as there were individuals within this organization who called for blacks to separate themselves from white society. I'm not a scholar on the Nation of Islam. I only know what I have read and heard throughout my life. There were a number of very prominent members of the Nation of Islam, most notably Malcolm X, who ended up being assassinated. There's a lot of controversy surrounding even his death. Currently, they're headed by a man by the name of Louis Farrakhan, who has continuously put his foot in his mouth with his statements concerning white people and separatism. If I'm not mistaken, the Southern Poverty Law Center has him listed on their website as a racist because he continuously badmouths both white individuals as well as those of the Jewish faith only to walk it back when he's called out on it. Regardless, this group calling themselves the Death Angels were a sect within the larger 
nation of Islam. I have read varying reports stating that people believe that they were, you know, known throughout the nation of Islam as a whole, and that the leadership basically gave them the green light to carry out these killings. My personal belief is that is not the case. There really is no evidence to point to that, but it's one of those things that I figured is worth touching on before we really dive into it. Before we dive into the crimes themselves, we do need to look a little bit at the Nation of Islam's belief system, though, so we can get an idea of how these individuals got to the point where they were willing to go out and commit these murders. According to Nation of Islam belief, whites were a malevolent race who were created thousands of years ago by a black scientist and leader by the name of Yukub. Now, according to their belief, this race that was created was inferior to the original race and had been created for the specific purpose of being subservience to them. So as you can see, just based on the beliefs of this organization, there's a lot of overt racial themes involved. As we continue discussing this, I'm going to try my best to handle things gingerly so as not to offend anyone because people's beliefs are their beliefs and they're the most sacred thing to them. My personal belief concerning all of this is that it's racist in nature to think that one group is better than any other. Before you go jumping on me, if you leave comments or, you know, any sort of uh, reviews for the show and jump on me based on my personal beliefs, not only will you be called out live on air, but your comment and your reviews will get deleted because I do know people. There's very little difference in the way that these individuals view things as opposed to how the idiots in the white separatists movement view things in terms of race. The major difference is that, for the most part, African Americans who believe this doctrine aren't going out and causing crimes because of this. Whereas groups like the Ku Klux Klan and Aryan Nations have no problem going out and committing crimes based on their belief system. The Death Angels, though, are different in that regard because they're, at least to the best of my knowledge, the first African-American organization that specifically targeted a racial group to commit murders upon. These crimes weren't committed they weren't planned per se. They were random attacks with really the only criteria being that the targets be white. Now, the idea of the whole Death Angels cult was that the individual seeking to actually become a Death Angel 
needed to kill four white children, five white women, or nine white men, at which point a picture would be taken of them, and this picture would have wings drawn on it at the neck area of the member, so that this picture could be included on a board of other certified angels within the Death Angels cult during their meetings. Similar how you'll see some gang members, they'll get the teardrop tattoo and color it in when they've gotten a kill or multiples of it for each kill they do. That's how these murders were looked at by members of this organization. Now, I have read that there were at least 15 members of the Death Angels cult as of 1973 who actually had gotten their wings. And this comes from a report compiled by the California State Attorney General's office who found that from roughly 1970 until 1973, fall of that year, there had been at least 45 murders that had taken place which fit the criteria of what would come to be known as the zebra killings. Obviously, this was in hindsight that they gathered this information and looked at these crimes and were able to tangentially link them to the zebra killings because officially they did not start until 1973. On October 20th, Richard and Quita Haig, 30 and 28 respectively, they were in the Telegraph Hill area of San Francisco walking near their house on Chestnut Street when a van pulled up and three individuals got out and surrounded them, at which point the couple was forced into the van at gunpoint, where they were promptly tied up. Richard was beaten pretty brutally within the van while his wife was repeatedly groped and molested by those within the vehicle. They were also robbed. Before the van was driven to a dockyard where railroad tracks came in and intersected, at which point Quita was dragged from the van and had her throat slashed. Her husband was similarly removed from the van and was slashed in the face with a what police initially suspected was a sharp knife. It turned out that they were both attacked with a machete and that Richard had been beaten over the head with a lug wrench, at which point they left the bodies and continued their drive. Now, Richard miraculously survived the assault, and eventually he comes to and stumbles out onto a street where a car passing sees him bloodied with his hands tied behind his back and pulls over to offer assistance. Richard is taken to the hospital where he's treated, and when questioned by police, he tells them that three young black males in a white van, which turned out to be a Dodge van, had accosted them on the street outside of their house and abducted them, 
and that there didn't appear to be any motive for this assault. Well, the police start looking into this, and they quickly discover that not long before the attack on Richard and his wife, three white children aged 11, 12, and 15 had been approached by two black males who attempted to grab one of the children, a girl, and drag her into a van. The oldest of this trio was able to cause some sort of a distraction and allow both himself and the other two young girls to escape. So automatically the police are now on high alert because they have the attempted abduction of three children by suspects who have also been described as having committed a murder and an attempted murder within a very short period of time. So the police are looking into this. On the night of October 23rd, a young woman by the name of Linda Lou Enger, 27, was traveling down Walker Street when she was accosted by a young black male who proceeded to brutally rape her. This report rape was not initially linked to the zebra killings. It would actually come out quite a bit later that it was part were perpetrated by an individual who was linked to the death angels. And the reason it was not initially linked is the perpetrator, Jesse Lee Cooks, knew that rape was but despised by those within the organization, and he feared that if he murdered her after he raped her, it would get back to the organization, and he would be kicked out of it, and possibly killed as a result. Dates differ on the next confirmed attack within the zebra killings. Some state it happened on October 30th of 73. Others state that it happened on October 29th. I personally believe that it was on the 30th, as that is what most reports state. Frances Rose, who was 28 years old, was sitting in her car on Hate Street when a person sitting inside of the passenger seat suddenly opened fire on her before fleeing on foot. I'm going to be using some descriptions from the book San Francisco Homicide Inspector 5 Henry 7, My Inside Story of the Night Stalker, City Hall Murders, Zebra Killings, Chinatown Gang Wars, and a City Under Siege by retired San Francisco homicide investigator Frank Falzen. Quote, it was just after 9 p.m. on October 30th, 1973. Jack and I were out working on a case. We were driving along Haight Street and approaching Laguna Street. It was a warm night. We had our windows rolled down. Suddenly, we both heard four loud popping noises from very close by. That sounded like gunshots, Jack said. Absolutely, I agreed. So these two homicide investigators, they go around the corner, and they see a Ford Mustang sitting in the driveway leading to the University of California campus on Herman Street. 
with the passenger door open. They notice that there is a young woman inside of the car who slumped over, nearly falling out of the passenger side. And it's pretty obvious that she's in a bad way. Eventually, it would be discovered that Francis had been shot four times with a 22 caliber automatic in the right side of her chest and neck, and then twice in the right side of the face. After reaching out to dispatch and requesting an ambulance, as well as stating that they believed the suspect was still in the area, the two officers began canvassing and quickly turned up a witness who said they saw a gunman walking away from the crime scene. Now, this witness had been in an apartment across the street and heard the shots, opened up their curtains, and seen a young black man described as about 25 years old, 5 feet 10 or 11 inches tall with a muscular build, wearing a navy blue watch cap, light-colored pants, and an olive green jacket and gloves. The cops really quickly descend on this area looking for the perpetrator. Fairly quickly, a suspect was found over at Walker and Steiner Streets, which is about six blocks from the scene of the crime. The man had gotten rid of the cap and jacket that he was wearing, but upon checking him out, it was discovered that he was carrying a loaded 22 automatic pistol on him. This man was Jesse Lee Cooks, who was age 28. Cooks was brought back to the scene and turned over to Detective... Frank Falzen, who placed him in the back of his car and then drove him over to the Hall of Justice. While they were booking him in, officers found 17 22 caliber bullets in one of the pockets of his pants. And it was at this point that Cooks was advised of his rights and asked if he wanted to make a statement. Now, Cooks claimed that he was walking down the street when a Mustang pulled out and blocked his path. The woman driving the car asked him if he wanted a ride. A statement which was later countered by a witness who claimed that Cooks had blocked the path of her vehicle and demanded the woman give him a ride. Now, according to Cooks' statement, he got into the woman's car and immediately became enraged when she called him a racial slur. Stated, quote, she gave me no other choice. I had to shoot her three, possibly four times before going on to recount to the officers where he had discarded the hat and jacket he had been wearing during the commission of the crime. These were later found by officers. It was a pretty open and shut case as far as Cooks was concerned. I'm read you a quick article from the Napa Valley Register, which was published on November 1st of 1973. Sam SF woman found slain. San Francisco, UPI, the young woman fatally shot in the head and neck as she sat in her car near the University of California inspect extension has been identified as Francis Rose, 28, a physical therapist. 
Police said Wednesday Miss Rose was taking art and photography at the university. They arrested Jesse Lee Cooks, 28, of San Francisco, in the Tuesday night death. Witnesses said a man sitting next to Miss Rose in the front seat of her car had shot her and then jumped out of the car. Cook was apprehended moments after the incident. Police said he served time at McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary at San Quentin Prison for bank robbery and was released three months ago. Now they have one of the, what would become known as the zebra killers, off the streets. Police at this time, however, had no idea that the man that they'd taken into custody was in fact involved in the murder from just 10 days beforehand. On November 9th of 1973, Robert Wayne Stokeman, age 27, who was a field clerk for the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, also known as Pacific Graft and Extortion, was at work. He was going around to various sites and collecting paperwork when a well-dressed man accosted him asking for directions to a gas station. As Stokeman began to give these directions, the man suddenly pulled out a gun and pushed Stokeman behind a fenced-in area. A fight ensued, and Stokeman ended up having his neck grazed with a bullet from a 32 caliber revolver. Now, I want you to remember that gun, because we're going to be coming back to that gun over and over again throughout this series of killings. Stokeman ends up basically kicking this guy's ass and taking the gun away from him, at which point he fires on the man, known as Leroy Doctor, hitting him in the arm, shoulder, and stomach. After being shot, Doctor took off. The police were contacted, and it was not long before he was apprehended eventually being convicted of assault with a deadly weapon. As with Cook's crime, he was not initially linked to the zebra murders. On December 25th of 1973, a shop owner by the name of Salim Arakat, aged 53, was inside of his store just across from the... San Francisco Civic Center when a group of men came into the store brandishing a pistol. Eric Hatt was quickly tied up and the store was robbed of over a thousand dollars before Eric Hatt was shot in the head and his wallet was taken. This article comes from the San Francisco Examiner on November 26, 1973. Salim Arakat, a grocer who was almost an institution in the Civic Center area, was killed yesterday morning in an execution-type slang and robbery that netted about $1,300. His body was found slumped in the back of the his store at 452 Larkin Street, his hands knotted behind his back with his own necktie. He had been shot in the head with a small caliber gun. Inspector John Fontio said Eric Hatt, a 53-year-old born in Jordan, 
was killed only moments after he opened the neat little store in the shadows of the Federal Building around 10 a.m. A customer found the body. An empty cash register drawer nearby, the weekend receipts missing, the victim's wallet, empty except for identification cards, was found on a muni bus yesterday afternoon. So now, in less than a, you know, a month period, we have four attacks, five if you count the rape perpetrated by cooks, two of which have resulted in three murders. On the night of December 11th, Paul Danick, a 26-year-old artist from Sonoma County, was standing near a phone booth on Haight and Buchanan Streets with a friend when two black males ages around 20 years old approached them. Now the men were described as having relatively short afros and wearing navy pea coats. According to the friend, we were standing here and two guys opened up on us. Basically, these two individuals walked up to Danik and his friend and just opened fire on them. Unfortunately, Danik was struck and killed while his friend ran. Once police arrived, they found three 32 caliber shells lying on the sidewalk. At this point, police begin to piece things together, specifically that this same 32 caliber gun had been used in the prior killings. Although they still really had no motive as to why the slayings were taking place, they at least now had a direction in which to aim themselves. Eventually, obviously, they're going to get an idea of why these crimes are taking place, specifically because they have composite sketches from a number of the crime scenes in which young black males are seen either fleeing on foot or in a van. On the evening of December 13, 1973, a 35-year-old by the name of Art Agnes, who would eventually be the mayor of San Francisco, was leaving an assembly meeting on child care centers in Paterio Hill. He stopped to talk with two women who had come to this meeting when a young black man walked up to him and opened fire, shooting him two times in the chest before fleeing on foot. This is a fairly brazen attack, obviously, and instantly grabbed headlines, particularly because less than an hour and a half later, another shooting took place. This was the shooting of Marietta Di Girolamo, age 31. Marietta was standing outside of a doorway on... Divisadero and Hate Street, when an African-American man wearing a three-quarter length leather coat walked up, pulled a pistol from his pocket, shoved Marietta back into the doorway, and fired three shots into her midsection before walking away. As with other cases, there were witnesses, however, 
a little bit of controversy arose when it was claimed that a Muni bus driver, which Muni is the buses inside San Francisco, refused to call the police. The bus driver refuted this, however, by stating that at the time of the shooting, his his radio was in a dead spot, and he did in fact contact the police as soon as they got into an area where his radio was working again. You can see here there's an escalation going on. We've talked about this in a number of other cases, but never in this kind of context, whereas oftentimes with a serial killer, they'll go through a period of cooling off after they commit a crime before going out and committing a number, another one. These killings were committed by a group, and it seems almost as though they went through a group cooling off period between murders only to strike again. And I say it seems that way because there are a number of other murders that took place during this period of time that have been tied to the zebra killings, although the perpetrators who were eventually arrested for the crimes that I'm specifically discussing were never tried for these other murders. So while some of them may in fact have been going through this cooling off period, not all of them were, and that's because they were working in concert with one another. The killings did not go unnoticed by the public at large. In fact, there was a noticeable decline within the nightlife of San Francisco as a result of these killings. So much so that newspapers began reporting on the fact that people were scared to leave their homes, even in areas that had a very active nighttime culture. Tourism as well began to drop off, although it's really going to pick up steam as we get into 1974. On the evening of December 20th, 1973, Ilario Bertuccio, an 81-year-old security guard, was returning from his job at a nearby bottling plant. As he crossed Bancroft Street, he was shot four times from behind, collapsing to the road, and it's speculated that he died before he even fell to the blacktop. And... Around about two hours after this slaying, a 20-year-old woman by the name of Teresa De Martini was returning to her apartment in the Panhandle District from a Christmas party. While parking her car near Central Avenue and Grove Street, a, quote, black man walked up to me and without saying a word, fired four shots at me. Then he walked away and got behind the wheel of an old white car and drove off. There was another man in the car. According to police, Teresa's assailant wore what is described at the time as a Superfly hat, which if you've ever seen the Superfly movie 
or any of the black exploitation films of the 1970s. It's it's a pimp hat. He was wearing that and a knee-length camel hair jacket. So, basically, a man dressed up as a pimp walked up to Teresa and opened fire on her. Now, fortunately for Teresa, who was a student at the time at Marin College, she survived her assault. And now we have another eyewitness for the police to build another composite sketch. The police are really ramping up their efforts in an attempt to find the men responsible for these crimes. It's a very difficult and precarious situation for them, though, because as I discussed at the beginning of the episode, there's a lot of racial tension in the Bay Area and in San Francisco, and we have these black-on-white crimes. They're trying to approach it as civilly as possible because you don't want to frighten the populace, but you also don't want to enrage another section of the populace by targeting members of their community for these crimes. But unfortunately, as you're going to see probably in the next episode, the city of San Francisco was unable to accomplish either of these goals. On December 22nd of 1973, a 19-year-old by the name of Neil Moynihan was walking up 12th Street, not far from where it intersects with Market, when a man wearing what was described at the time of, as a buckskin jacket approached him and shot him three times. Initial police reports stated that the suspect was possibly Latino, although this was later corrected to state that they believed that this killing was linked to the others that had taken place. One important part piece of information here is that at this period of time, on the day of the 23rd, unbeknownst to the general public, the police department in San Francisco had initiated a special task force who were charged with finding the individuals responsible for the five slayings that had taken place over the last few days. The reason why this wasn't made public at the time, again, has to do with the racial connotations involved in all of these slayings. This task force would eventually become known as Operation Zebra, from whence the organization that they were hunting drew their name of the Zebra Murderers, or the Zebra Killings. Now, just after Monaghan was murdered, a 65-year-old woman by the name of Mildred Hosler was at the intersection of McCoppin, Gow, and Mission Streets when what witnesses described as either a black male or a Latino approached her and shot Mildred four times at point-blank range. Both of these crimes make mention of this buckskin jacket that is being worn. The next crime that ha is known to have been tied to the zebra murders 
at least to the best of my knowledge, has never officially been added to the list. Some websites list it as being a part of it, others do not. Some newspaper articles list it as being related to the crimes, other dunes do not. I am putting it here because I found it on enough different lists of known victims that I need to include it for the sake of completeness. This comes from, again, the San Francisco Examiner, December 24th of 1973. Ocean Beach yields a body. A dismembered body cut with surgical precision and stuffed in a cardboard box was found at Ocean Beach today. Wrapped in plastic, the body was discovered by a 21-year-old woman on the beach near the foot of Pacino Street. The box, which encased the body, was wrapped in a tarpaulin. Coroner's officials faced the grisly Christmas Eve task of determining the identity of the body, a white male. Homicide Inspector William Armstrong said he believed the body had been placed on the beach yesterday or last night. It had not started to decompose. He speculated the body may have been dumped from an automobile to the bottom of the steep incline where it was found. It was the 103rd homicide of the year. The reasons that this has been tied to the zebra killings is because eventually you're going to see the mayor of San Francisco at the time, Joseph Aliado, compiled a list of 57 individuals he believed to have been victims of the zebra killings. And this John Doe, who has never been identified to the best of my knowledge, has been included on that list in certain instances. Although, from what I understand, it is not officially added to that list. We are going to leave the zebra killings at this time. It's the end of 1973, and the San Francisco Police Department is really scrambling in an attempt to try and figure out not only who is committing these crimes, but what is the reasoning behind it. At this point, they have an idea forming that Race may be related to this because they've had so many unsolved murders and unprovoked attacks where people have survived that it is pointing him to the direction that these are racially motivated. At this time, however, they don't really understand how they're all connected and they don't have enough evidence to come forward to the public and state, hey, these are all done by the same individual or individuals, and here's why we believe so. But we will get back into this next week. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Death Cast. If you enjoy what I do, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to the show, share it online with your friends. Come and join the Facebook page, The Death Cast. I constantly post on a daily basis true crime cases that have taken place that I'm looking into. A lot of them are things that have just happened. We have a lot of fun over there interacting and talking about various aspects of them. Until next time, The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.